You're listening to Fun Shack. I'm Ross Butler, and today I'm speaking with Douglas Hanson-Luke, Executive Chairman of Future Planet Capital, which he founded in 2015 and now manages 400 million in venture capital assets. Douglas has worked at several firms, including Bain & Company, Salomon Brothers, ABN Amra Asset Management. He was CEO of Rubico in the Middle East, and he's been instrumental more recently in advocating for UK pension fund reforms in support of venture capital. Douglas, welcome to Fun Shack. Your bio is it's very diverse, it's very international, there's a political element to it. What are your interests and what was the journey that led you up to the establishment of Future Planet Capital in 2015, I think it was? I suppose I've always had an interest in innovation, uh, in new things, in emerging markets and in emerging asset classes, you know, new ways of doing things. And of course, the other consistent thread throughout my career is investments. So if you put the two together, um, being able to look and see what investment has been able to do in emerging markets, the ability for the positive power of profit to lift literally hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, which I was able to see with my own eyes when I worked in the Far East, that inspired me. And that, I think, is what really connected me to the idea of saying, I want to do something more. Um, I want to make a difference, but in ways that I understand. And I sincerely believe that there's nothing sustainable about making a loss. Um, not being able to pay your employees uh, the day after the next isn't, isn't a great thing. So actually, profit and being sustainable about your profits isn't you know, an either or. It's actually integral to doing good. And, mm. and that's what it is. It's a means to an end. The name Future Planet Capital puts you in a certain area of the market. Mm. Why did you choose that and what does it, what does it really mm. imply? So when I began um, to work in this space, you know, I, I'd been involved at ABN AMRO and at Rubico in setting up the company's response to the UN principles for responsible investing. So from 2003, I was watching responsible investing and what was called ESG and, and how that developed. And in the Middle East, a lot of ethical investment as well around Islamic investing. So I was in that, within that genre. Um, and when I came back to Britain, I wanted to use that experience, use the relationships I had to actually help the larger institutions, the biggest fund managers, uh, define new mandates. And they were finding it very difficult getting into venture. Um, you know, as far as they were concerned, and mostly they're right, it was a Californian thing. People in California found it very difficult to deal with people not only in a different time zone, but also culturally different. And in institutions where venture generally wasn't big enough to move the needle, but if you lost everything, then that could be very career limiting. So looking at that, I was trying to work out how could you, how could you find a way for a big institution to sensibly make money and invest in venture? How could you define a mandate? And we defined it as make it global, so you're spreading it and diversifying it. Make it a little bit towards higher growth connected to the world's top universities. You know, no one ever got fired for choosing IBM computers. Um, Certainly no one's going to get fired for investing in a company coming out of Stanford or or Cambridge or Tel Aviv. Um, But also, and finally, if you want to deploy large amounts of money, and that's what these sovereign funds need to do, then you've got to find a problem that's large. And the biggest problems are global challenges which then allowed us to link in, you know, my own personal passion and belief that there's no point doing all of the work that we do unless we're actually going to leave the world in a better place. How would you define mm. impact? Because it means different things to different people sure. in your context. Sure. So we're impact-led. 
And what does that mean? It means that everything we do, we're aiming to have a positive impact. Uh, we map that against the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And depending on our clients, because we invest globally, nationally, and regionally, some of our clients have a very explicit UN SDG mandate, so British government pensions. Others are more selective, so we manage money for the government of Monaco and the Prince Albert Foundation. They care about the blue ocean. Now, that's part of the UN SDGs, but you know, for them, they want to make sure it's connected to water and the oceans and biodiversity. In our regional funds, we manage money for the British Business Bank and also for the West Midlands Combined Authority in the United Kingdom. And there, that's about the sustainable development goals of reducing inequality. You know, in British political terms, you'd call it leveling up. Um, but it's not just in the UK that you've got inequality. And there are many regional funds around the world. So for us, impact is anchored by the UN SDGs. But for each mandate, it depends very much on what the client is specifically targeting. So these days, all private equity firms have to uh, deal with side letters when they're fundraising yes. because certain institutions don't want to invest in certain specific mm. things. What you're doing is, is vastly more complicated. In fact, that seems to be the whole gig. It's like integral. You're pursuing all of these goals and they mm. are different. So presumably this yeah. is something of an organisational challenge. It's a platform play. We have to operate to be efficient, to be sustainable and profitable ourselves. We have to do this in a scalable way, in a way where we share our platform across those different mandates. So if we start with, say, the impact side of it, um, there are 17 UN SDGs. Now, you know, I've got a reasonably good memory, but I can't remember and reel off 17. And even if I did, most people would lose interest by the end. So when we talk about impact, we try to make it digestible. So it's about the biggest challenges. What are those? Climate change, education, health, security, sustainable growth. So we immediately put it into five categories. There aren't that many things which actually can't fit into that. You know, there are some that fit into mm. it in a bad way. Tobacco, bad for your health. Mm. Uh, but you can see very easily, if we're doing a vaccine, then yes, it's going to be good for people's health. And, and that passes the first test. The things that we do after that, just to, again, to make it scalable, to make it something that doesn't... It, I don't know, it doesn't descend into a, a debate about how many angels dance on the head of a pin. Um, we say, okay, does it map onto UN SDGs? There's 17 of them. Does it map onto sub-themes within that? And in total, there are nearly 200 of those. So if, again, very quick, you know, with data and data analysis, you can do that very quickly. It can almost be scraped, and most often it is. It's great from public information when we're looking at our deal flow. And then, finally, we actually look at the order of magnitude and we look at the direction of the impact. And then after we've invested, we monitor it very carefully, not only for ESG and everything else, but when we're exiting, we want to know exactly what that impact is. As a general principle, antitrust laws are designed to prevent independent businesses from collaborating in a way that distorts markets or inhibits fair competition. As the climate crisis and other environmental and social issues become more urgent, and in the absence of effective international law and regulation, many organisations are working together to achieve their common sustainability goals and to offer mutual support in navigating complex regulations and novel challenges. But where does such cooperation pose competition law risk? This is the topic of the latest edition of Travis Smith's Alternative and Sustainability Insights Briefings. To read the briefing, as well as podcasts and videos on related topics, simply visit travismith.com 
and go to the Knowledge drop-down where you'll find regular updates from Trevor Smith's legal experts on the latest in sustainability-related issues facing private equity and the broader asset management industry. Future Planet Capital, on the tin, it makes it mm. sound like maybe you're just a climate yes. fund, but actually it's, it's planet and people. Yes, do. So absolutely. you've got a large absolutely. healthcare yes. uh, component to that, which, you know, looks mainstream. Mm. It looks like you could just go out and be a... A life a science health, fund. Yes, Life absolutely. science fund, exactly. Yeah. That's where the, uh, the impact anchors it. So... We're, we're data-driven and we benchmark everything. Mm. So when we look for our innovation, we take it, um, we benchmark it against companies and founders and science that spin out from the world's top universities. And we look at the top 10, um, top 10 universities and British government research laboratories. You know, one day we'd like to be able to take the American research laboratories and p- potentially Indian, Israeli and Singaporean or East Asian as well. So we, we look at that and if it's, if what we're looking at is as good as the best coming out from them, then we know we're onto something that's worthwhile. We also, so in the same way that we map onto the UN SDGs, is it uh, something which is going to make a difference? We also map and benchmark against where the data, uh, not the data, where the data points us, the provenance of those companies, and are they as good as the best from Stanford or Oxford? Um, all of that is data-driven. And it then means that we are getting things that are, as you talked about it, very deep tech or, or very exciting in terms of life sciences. But then to your final point, well, couldn't we just be a life science fund? Well, no, because when we actually look at impact in health, we're not just looking at will it reduce cancer or will it be a really neat, very highly profitable uh, business in a niche area. We're saying, actually, how many people will be impacted by this? And what's the cumulative value? So one of the things that we grapple with, um, Adrian Hill, who's you know, one of the founders of the Oxford vaccine, um, he's, he's now working on malaria. You know, it's, it's very clear. And we're looking at that and we're saying, if you get the right vaccines for malaria, if you work on that, then you're looking at a disease which kills up to you know, 600 million people or infects 600 million people a year. It's a huge number. But most vaccine companies and certainly most pharma companies don't look at it because the end market isn't necessarily one that will pay them for it. So we're looking at how can we take something like that, how can it be profitable and how many people will it impact at the same time. So it's a dual mandate Mm. and that is different from a traditional life science company Mm. which will only potentially be looking at one metric which is how much money can be made. In some ways, you just flip the telescope around a little bit, yeah. which could actually just be a really sensible strategy, even if you were. It's to uh, your absolutely. point at the start. Yes. You know, just if you are purely financial, one way to do it is to think what's going to make us loads of money. But the other way to do it is, is what's the really big problem? Because yeah. if we solve it, the money will come. Just don't uh, worry uh, about absolutely. it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, my view is if you're solving a really big problem that impacts billions of people, then there's clearly value there. And it's mm. our job at Future Planet to help the founders realize what that value is and actually help them maximize it so you know there may be some people that would disagree with that they'd say well no you should uh, make sure that it benefits the world and gives it away for free um you know we'd have liked the oxford vaccine to have made more money than it did it's been a profitable investment but we think no you've got to have these dual constraints you've got mm. to be able to create enough profit that the capital will follow or the potential for profit so that capital will be there to develop and scale up and bring these great things to the world as quickly as possible. 
but there's no point having that profit if you're not bringing great things to the world. It, yeah. It's a dual constraint. In terms of reporting, I mean, reporting on your performance, mm. that's, that's hard enough. Yeah. But reporting on the, the impact, the mm. good that you do in the world, that's much harder because it's, there's, an equality, there's a quantitative yeah. element, I suppose. Yes. But it's, yeah. uh, and it's also, you can only lose everything in finance. Whereas mm. if you're trying to make an impact and something goes wrong, yes then you can lose a lot more than money. Mm. And so uh, I guess the question is about, so the measurement and reporting and accountability yes. on the impact side, how do you think about that mm. and, and, and manage mm. it? So there's a kind of getting in and getting out. So I talked to you about the very superficial but necessary ability to quickly pinpoint what we should be looking at, the biggest challenges, mapping them onto the, the sustainable development goals. The next stage for us is what we call the impact value gap. And we've been working on this since 2015. The impact value gap looks at things like quality of life years in health. Um, it looks at uh, increases in productivity for education. And although some people hate this, the, the world of cost-benefit analysis is old. People have been looking at that when they're building roads or deciding whether to put up a, a street sign warning about a, a dangerous corner. So we're able to use the impact value gap to quantify not just the financial returns, but the returns to society, to quantify that in financial terms, pound or dollar terms. We use the same value for a life anywhere in the world. So we don't value an American life as being more valuable than a British one or a Chinese one. So it's the same kind of constant purchasing power value for a life. And we then are able to rank the different challenges that we look at. So right at the beginning when we go in, we're actually saying this is what the annual value of something would be. Now, if you talk about a fuel or a source of energy that uh, doesn't involve burning and pollution, uh, 6 million people die a year from particulate emissions. You can actually quantify that. You can say this has a value. Mm -hmm. So we look at that and then we look at the, the company and say, all right, let's do the deeper due diligence. Uh, what's the probability of success, which any other venture capitalist will do? What's the percentage market share that we can think they can uh, achieve? And then we move from the, the total impact value gap to, if you like, something like an addressable market. And then within that, an address, you know, you, you work out what's this really going to be for a company. Mm. And that's what we go in with as our starting point, the financial value and the value to society. And we call that gap the impact value gap. We talk to the company about how they can try to monetize and capture some of that. And then as we invest, we stay in touch with the companies. We make sure we get the reports for what they're doing. And when we leave, we've worked on a methodology with uh, PwC. So we can actually say, well, this is what the potential was. When we leave, this is how much has actually been created. And, and that's how I was able to give you the figures for the Oxford vaccine, for example. Yeah. Uh, I like the idea of um, valuing each human life because that's not necessarily how an economist no. would do it. And so no. that, that makes a lot of sense. That's valuing the, the upside. That's yes, valuing the return. That's what right. about the risk management? The risk side? management, you have to look at that as well. So then you say, for example, what are we looking at at the moment? Um, on the Blue Ocean, we've just invested in or about to invest in a company called Captura. Uh, absolutely in line with our thesis. It's uh, spun out of Caltex. Um, you know, the founder's got a, a great reputation for his previous company. It's a, a double unicorn when he exited that. And they're looking at direct ocean 
water capture. So decarbon. So you're actually looking to uh, capture carbon, put it back into the sea. Now, when we're looking at that, we're going, okay, this is great. You know, we can understand why hydrocarbon companies um, are investing alongside us, don't always like what they might be doing. Um, and is this really going to be good? Or is it actually going to accelerate desalination? Is it going to lead to deionization of the ocean? Is it going to be bad for fish? So we have to look at all of those things and ensure that actually there's a, a positive benefit. And in this instance, with Captura, there absolutely was. And, you know, we're delighted because very soon, and we'll have to, you'll have to watch out for the headlines, we're going to see one of the world's biggest uh, direct ocean water uh, carbon capture projects being announced, I think, around COP. Um, and, and it can be done. But yes, you have to look at the negatives. Um, food is a big one. You know, we've invested in cultivated meat. That's one of our biggest investments, a company called Roslyn Technologies, which has spun out of the veterinary uh, school at Edinburgh University from the same place as uh, created Dolly the Sheep with stem cells. So now if you think about what are the upsides and downsides of cultivated meat, well, for anyone who studies climate change and health, then actually eating processed meat um, grown in concentrated feeding lots is incredibly bad for the environment. It's incredibly bad for biodiversity. It leads to things like pandemics as animal species come together. And it's incredibly bad for our health. So if we had cultivated meat, it seems as if a test tube can solve all of those problems. No more deforestation, no more massive food miles. You can create your, your bioreactors outside centers of population. But of course, actually to create a, a bioreactor that's going to have the power to produce that much cultivated meat, you're going to have to have huge sources of energy. So we then have to look at, well, hang on, what's the risk that this is actually going to add to climate change? Because uh, you're actually going to be using even more Fortunately, uh, traditional livestock farming is so energy inefficient that almost anything is better for it, uh, and cultivated meat will be there. So then we're thinking, okay, well, we want to hear from the company, and how are they going to be powered? Is it going to be wind energy? Quite easy to do offshore in Scotland. Is it going to be solar? Works very well in places like the Middle East, where you don't have that much livestock. And if you do, it's incredibly uh, bad for the environment and bad for the local ecosystems and for nature. So you have to link those particular companies and be pretty clear-eyed about both the risks and the opportunities and then say, how do we mitigate it? And then some of the things that we do fit together, which is the fun part. You said at the beginning, you know, isn't it, uh, aren't you having to learn about an awful lot? Well, we do, you know, cultivate and meat. Uh, not only are we having to make sure we understand uh, stem cells and the... Uh, the bioengineering around that. We also have to understand the energy sources. Mm. You know, one of our investments is a, a fusion energy company, mm. and we've looked at fusion all over the world. So if what you want is an unlimited supply of energy to provide food, um, well, put a fusion plant next to your bioreactor. Um, so, you know, sometimes it's not that we're actually doing things that distract us. In many instances, we find they come together. And the nexus between food, health, Climate change and security is a very, very strong one at the moment. It feels like a much more complex um, analysis, actually, than, mm. than, a, than a straightforward business plan. Is it going to grow or not? You've got to look yeah. at, is it going to grow? And what are all the potential unintended consequences yeah. of this action, yeah. of which there will always be many? 
I think we're at a, a point, a step change in the world of investment and, and in capitalism as well. Because, you know, why did we start off with accounting, profit and loss and balance sheets? It was try to understand the businesses in ways that we could compute at the time. Well, frankly, now we know the negative consequences of what we do. And science and the power of data and everything else means that there are very few of us who can be blind to... There are fewer un, invisible unintended consequences. They're unintended, but we know about them. And in a world that's becoming increasingly small and interconnected, and in a world where we're actually living longer, you know, what harm we do now is something that we will once again encounter in our lives. We will meet the people that we have harmed. They will know who we are. Um, we will have an opportunity when people will be looking at us and say, well, how should we treat you who created this? So frankly, if what you're looking at is long-term value maximization, it may seem more complicated, but that's actually because the, because the world is complicated. Yeah. We just ref, It's a reflection of reality. Yeah. You know, when I was younger, I was a bit of an arch capitalist. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's this phrase in Silicon Valley, you know, move fast and break things. Yes. And I was always like, well, that's progress. And, you know, you've got to have faith that ultimately, if you just keep pushing forward, things will go well. And, you know, after COVID, um, I become a lot more cautious. Mm. Like, well, actually, you know, there are unintended consequences to the scientific method. And, and actually, maybe these things need to be looked at in the round. So the Oxford vaccine, for mm. example certainly saved a lot of lives but it's it's it was vaccine research that yeah. seemed you know that caused the problem in the first place yeah. and there are and there are other things that people don't even think about allegedly like, <laughs> but there's also things like um what is it gene, you know gene editing yes i mean this is a this is potentially if it goes wrong if there mm. is a lab mm. leak you know potentially a disaster yes and i think if you're going to move fast and break things we're in a dangerous world it's, it's certainly a responsibility when you look at science and and the two biggest trends that we're seeing in science at the moment are, you know, gene editing or DNA and, mm. and, and now protein, uh, protein analysis and big data, right? And AI. Right. Um, putting the two together, you know, it's, it's not just that the computers may take over the world, but actually the computers may redesign us, you know, mm. um, biologically, not just in terms of turning the machines against us, but actually with uh, things like drug discovery speeding and everything Speeding up adaptation. Else, speeding up adaptation. Um, it can be done. So yeah. it's something where we try to look at things in the round. Yeah. And we try not to get too carried away. Mm. Um, and that's perhaps where the peer review and actually being able to compare yeah. the different universities mm. and different approaches really helps us as well. The universities, you've obviously mm. got great access to them. You're... Mm. You, you're Oxford yes, man. And right. What's the deal with getting uh, access? We were very fortunate. I think intuitively, yes. You know, these universities have got, uh, if you take the top 10 universities and the, the companies that have spun out of them, once you get past universities seven or eight, the number of spin-outs just drops like a cliff. So again, in a smaller world, more global world, people want to go to the top university. In a, you know, an American ranking, it's MIT on uh, Times Higher Education Supplement, it's Oxford. But there are a small number of those. So talent goes to them, and talent can now share its knowledge and scale globally. It's a wonderful thing. Um, so it was easy to say, yes, we should go to the top 10. Right? It also is, makes it manageable. We visit them uh, quarterly. We talk to them monthly. 
But the breakthrough for us, we were fortunate. Future Planet was founded in 2015 at a time when university venture funds were themselves just beginning. So Oxford, which has got the world's largest university venture fund, it's over a billion pounds, that was founded in 2015, uh, 2014, 2015. X Fund, which was partnered with uh, Harvard University, that was founded in 2016. So the way that we work at speed with universities is by being partnered with their local university funds. And that means you avoid the downside of university bureaucracy. Um, you still have the downside that each university is an ecosystem. It's incredibly um, concentrated and inward looking. You know, It's great for due diligence. It means that you know, when you talk to a professor, you talk to another professor um, at the end of the, the high table or in the lab or whatever, and they'll say, I remember what they did when they were 18, mm. you know, mm. and I know everything about them. Uh, that helps us with the, uh, the due diligence internally within an ecosystem. Mm. And what we're doing is we're connecting these clusters of innovation, and then we're actually kind of comparing and contrasting globally because they're not quite so good. They're very good at reading each other's research, but they don't know for sure what's what's happening in other other centers of innovation because they're so focused on their own ecosystem. Yeah. So we take the benefits of lots of inward-looking societies, of finding the right partners within them, and those partners are the people who are investing at a very early stage with those companies, and then we're arbitraging and connecting them and comparing them globally. And there's a lot there. So the 10 universities that we cover and centers of innovation, um, they've spun out over 13,000 companies. The university funds that we've partnered with have invested in about 2,500 of those. And then every year we invest in about 20 companies. So, you know, we're, we call it triple distillation. Uh, you know, our friends in the Middle East always love that. They titter away as we talk about <laughs> triple blended Scotch whiskey or something. And we, we just look at that and you're, you're investing in the top 1% or 2%. And you're doing it on the back of all that non-dilutive funding, all of that research that governments and universities have put in. Then the scientists or the entrepreneurs and the founders have set up their companies and then experts locally have invested in them. And then we're looking at them when they've usually gone past proof of concept and are becoming at the point where they can scale. And we say, how can we, are they the best in the world? Are they the best value? And what can we do to connect them to other markets and other investors around the world? So we can add value again collectively because we can go to them and say, this is the best company. Yeah. So what are your big wins? You mentioned the Oxford, is it Vaxitech? Yeah, it's called Vaxitech. Yeah, has that yeah. the, been the biggest win? So far? Uh, that was the fastest. So fastest we'd, we'd followed that company with our quarterly visit, mon monthly calls to Oxford. We'd followed that company for three or four years. So we knew that they had uh, a vaccine for Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which is a, a SARS virus, very similar to COVID. So we knew that they would possibly have something there that could work. Um, so but that was a traditional vaccine. Sorry. Traditional vaccine, Adeno vaccine. And so when Sarah Gilbert was, you know, spending that famous weekend where she was looking at the DNA structure, um, we had already approached the company and said, will you let us know if you think there's some potential? So we were able to invest, um, having already done our due diligence, before the trial results were out. You know, it was a, a real breath of relief when the trial results were positive, but we already knew it worked with other disease indications and that this would be very similar. 
Um, so that was that was great. And within a, a year of actually investing, they'd IPO'd um, and listed on the the Nasdaq. So that was good. Another company in Are our, you still invested? Yes, we're still there. Yeah, and they've got many more indications, I think, and can to bring more. And we're introducing them to other portfolio companies who, uh, particularly on the mRNA stage, they can work together on that. Um, then in America, 23andMe was uh, a great success. So 23andMe, many people think of that as working out whether or not you're Irish. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's also, they've had substantial investment from uh, GlaxoSmithKline for drug discovery because they've got one of the biggest databases in the world combining phenotypes, people's individual characteristics, with their DNA genotypes. So you put the two together, yeah. and it can really help accelerate drug discovery. Um, and there's a lot of AI drug, drug discovery around that, but that listed as well. Uh, also NASDAQ and a, a SPAC led by um, Virgin Group and Richard Branson. Um, another one in America that you know we, we do think of as, as we haven't exited yet, but uh, Guideline, Guideline 401k. And it shows it doesn't need to be super deep tech. This is a, a SaaS company, so software as a service. They're providing pensions for the unpensioned in America. So they're America's fastest growing um, pension fund in terms of numbers or pension fund provider, and they target SMEs. So in the same way that lots of smaller companies now will have um, an accounting or an expensive software package and app for their employees, Likewise, this provides all of their employees with the ability to actually get a pension at a reasonable price. So I think they've now got well over um, 30 or 40 million people who are now in America. So 10% of the American population are now having their pensions provided through this service. As whereas before, unless you were in a big company in America, it was a lot more difficult. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's an impactful uh, challenge. Yeah. That really is impactful because yeah. people spend a lot in our industry, a lot yes. of time talking about inequality. Yeah. And their solution is always um, some kind of uh, proactive recruitment, which yeah. I don't think is going to move the needle. Mm. Uh, something like this, yes. it really is levelling up or whatever they say uh, in America. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, we'd like to talk to them about how they can then help guide all of those pensioners into more impactful investments as well. Mm. You know, here in Britain, we've got uh, Richard Curtis and Make My Money Matter. Um, you know, great groups who we respect, who are actually trying to say, well, let's think very sensibly about how we invest. Um, and it's not just us and how we make our investments, it's how everybody does that. So Guidelines got the potential to do that. Well, that brings us quite neatly on to the uh, recent reforms or proposed reforms in the UK around uh, pension fund investment. Mm. I think they're called the Mansion House reforms. Yes. And you were involved in this in some way. You did a lot of media at the time. I heard mm. you on the Today programme yes. and you were at the Parliamentary Select hearing. Mm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and what's coming down the line and what was agreed? Yeah, it, this could put Britain, uh, not that it needs to be Britain at the front, but it, it could allow Britain to provide an example of how you really can link uh, investment and science to make change quickly. Uh, and we know after the pandemic that it can be done, right? In a much more negative way, we know, you know, during the Second World War, uh, all the advances in science that were rushed through mm. when money wasn't an objective, uh, mm. wasn't an obstacle. Yeah. Or, penicillin. Uh, penicillin. And that's a good thing, thankfully, that came mm. out of it. Um, you know, nuclear weapons, not such a good thing. But all of that came through. So we already knew in the backs of our minds and our grandparents knew 
that money and challenge and science put together, you get solutions. Um, and pandemic reminded us of that. And what is exciting to me about the Mansion House reforms is that if it happens, um, and the time scale is very fast, then over the next six years, we could see a quadrupling of money um, into science and innovation-backed companies. Um, and the biggest pensions, people like Phoenix or Legal in general, um, they are looking to do this and combine it with impact. You know, what we're talking about and what we were doing in 2015 was, was cutting edge. Now it's become mainstream and mainstream, but doing it with very large amounts of money. Um, Britain has got one of the most developed pensions and financial systems in the world. What's really frustrating is that actually our institutional investors have just barely scraped mm. the surface, scratched mm. the surface of what can be done um, in venture. So, you know, the actual term venture or merchant venturer uh, came from the city of London. Mm. And yet because of regulations that uh, try to protect our pensions, mm. um, there were significant disincentives and barriers for large pensions to invest in this space. Is that why this had to be a political thing? Because they needed a, a regulatory... It, it needs thing. regulation. It also needs comfort, I think. So, you know, when we set up Future Planet, we were very aware that people in sovereign funds don't like to lose money um, and that there's a career-limiting uh, aspect to companies collapsing. Um, you know, people don't mind being wrong with it in the same way as everyone else. Yeah, it's a psychological aspect. Absolutely. So, you know, for the last decade, people have been piling into government bonds because theoretically um, they're much safer than anything else because, you know, if you buy a 30-year US Treasury in 30 years' time, you will get the face value back. But the reality is that when interest rates are super low, which they have been, um, we all knew that interest rates were going to go up. So mm. everybody knew that there was going to be a loss on those, but still people piled into them. Mm. And of course, governments didn't mind that because governments are borrowing money through the debt market, through, through those bonds. So you had this dreadful situation where you had the human humans herding together by bonds, going with received opinion, they're very safe, encouraged by people who've got vested interests, for example, governments who use the bond markets to raise money, um, and all repeating that mantra. Of course, that isn't the case. They are very um, safe, except when you need them. And as we saw recently uh, in Britain, with the difficulties that uh, Kwasi Kwarteng had, um, you know, suddenly bond markets weren't liquid. Um, and suddenly their value wasn't there. So for us to revert to traditional risk-adjusted returns, you'd be more diversified. Mm. You actually take mm. into account. And the great thing about venture is, particularly if it's impactful, is you're actually future-proofing you know, the next yeah. generation, yeah. So, which is a part of government. So you know, it's a long-winded way, my answer to you there, of actually saying, it's a very powerful thing. It's not just about regulation. It was also about government changing a perception, saying to fund managers, we don't mind if you stop buying our bonds. Mm. And we don't mind if you take the risk of looking down the future. Because yeah. actually, if you can invest in food that means that we are more healthy in the future and food that doesn't lead to climate change, then that's actually a positive thing. And that's a lot less risky than just providing us with more of a fix of debt. Absolutely. which is what we've been doing. It's amazingly difficult to get people over the, 
the high risk yeah. um, mindset. And I, m- one of my friends wrote quite a successful book called Beyond the J Curve, which mm. really demonstrated that actually yes. diversified portfolio venture capital funds isn't is not as risky. No. Um, and so I think you made that point on the mm. Today program as well. Mm. So yeah, I can understand that. But um, I suppose to play devil's advocate, does mm. more does more funds flowing into your market actually depress returns? It will. Um, and you know, I talked a little bit about the the shift uh, to impact, right? Um, when I first started looking at responsible investing and NESG, you know, people said, well, does this produce higher or lower returns? It was a big debate, you know. If you invest responsibly, does that mean you're prepared to accept lower returns? Oh, yeah. And, you know, intuitively, I, my view was always, well, actually, if you're willing to take as much information into your evaluation as possible, mm. then you should be making better investment decisions and therefore you'll be avoiding kind of uh, black swan events, mm. the the very rare and infrequent but very substantial losses. Um, and if you looked at ESG returns over the last decade, they actually have been higher than traditional uh, public market returns. Um, but that's temporary because everyone's moved to it now. Mm. So actually... All the money is going into it, so that temporary advantage is going to be arbitraged away. Likewise, with impact investing, um, I'm sure we're going to make excess returns over the next four or five years. Um, you know, we've in our climate change basket, very, very concentrated basket. So anyone who's listening to this, don't don't mock us. We're not saying this is what you get on everything, but we've got uh, treble digit returns because so much money is now flowing into climate change. So you've got a wall of money. So that type of supernormal return will disappear from venture. But when you're talking about impact, what, what is good, you know there's some fundamental value there to anchor it. Um, I think to use two different examples from, from venture capital. Um, and it doesn't mean that uh, one is right or one is wrong, but let's say Pokemon Go, okay? <laughs> Um, Pokemon Go, we, we all heard about it. It was, it was a, a venture-backed company, um, spin-outs from people who had worked with Google um, and Google Maps. Uh, that's how they did the location-based software. So Pokemon Go, you know, enormously successful, worldwide phenomena um, for, what, 18 months? And then that's it, right? Company did very well, um, but then went up massively, has come back in value and is back to a normal return. Uh, a vaccine company you know, say the Oxford one, well, it can go up, it can go down an awful lot. But if you can say we've prevented the deaths of 6 million Mm. lives, Mm. that's fundamental value. And I would argue that over time, you've got an underpinning, you know, a life is worth something. If somebody's Mm. dying of a disease, they will pay a lot of money. If somebody can get a better education or pay for a pension, Mm. that is real value. So I'm not saying that venture, lots of money will depress super normal returns in venture. But I think the impact side of it will provide um, a return to true value. Um, Douglas, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Thanks very much for sparing your time for Fund My Shack. pleasure. Thank you, Ross. Thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to the Fund Shack podcast. It's the private capital channel for alternative investment professionals. This podcast was designed and produced by Linear B Group, a leading content marketing agency focused on financial and professional services. Thanks for listening.